Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. I first crossed paths with this week's guest when we were both starting out as little Suzuki Twinklers at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. Then our paths diverged until we were in a quartet together during our middle school years. And then we went our separate ways once again until reconnecting a few years ago, several decades later. Both of us are no longer playing, but are still very much involved in music, just in ways we never would have been able to anticipate. I don't know if it's just my imagination or if this is really a thing, but I get the sense that there can sometimes be an unspoken assumption that if a talented young musician doesn't go on to have a career in music, that they have somehow failed. Which not only seems a little unfair, given how most musicians start their training well before they get a chance to really explore the world, but might also lead to missing signs that a slightly different path may actually be a better fit for one's evolving interests and talents. So today, I'll be chatting with cellist-turned-entrepreneur Margot Dracos. Formerly serving as principal cellist of the Oregon, San Diego, and Seattle symphonies, associate principal of the Pittsburgh Symphony, and member of the American String Quartet, she's also the co-founder of Instant Encore and is now the CEO of Artist Year. In this week's conversation, you'll hear Margot describe some of the key factors that enabled her to excel on the cello and enjoy the successes she's had but also share the various challenges she had to overcome, as well as the three key elements that have helped guide her decisions over the years and led her to where she is today. Honestly, like in trying to get caught up and look through what you've done over the years, like you've done so many different things and it's been such an intriguing and varied career that, so what I thought we could do maybe as a general format is is go through your story a bit, like post Curtis and explore some of the, the decision points along the way, moments where you might have had doubts or, or uncertainties, but wanting to do different, because I think, you know, we talked about before, there's often a difference between the story that people see on the outside and the story that we experience mm-hmm. on the inside. And there's a lot more doubt and fear on the inside than anyone ever gets a sense of. Um, so, so yeah, like absolutely from, so from Curtis, right. You went with the next thing, Pittsburgh then or like how well, did- first I oh that's a great well thank you first of all thank you for um framing that so well and it feels timely I've been recently I've been rather obsessed with various 
presidents and uh, political leaders and their decision points. And of course, you never think about that with your own own, own journeys. But um, yeah, it's funny you should say when I think about fear or doubts, I'd say actually my my uh, my end of Curtis was one of the first major moments of fear and doubt and panic. I was so fortunate at Curtis to have you know, support towards my living expenses. I was touring um, with musicians from Marlboro. And, you know, it, it was just a, a magical time musically, um, personally with friends and professionally rewarding. And I was planning on staying a fifth year at Curtis and my performing career, if you will, meager as it was at that moment, Sawyer, my teacher, David Sawyer, the former cellist of the Guarneri String Quartet, who, uh, later walked me down the aisle at our wedding. It was like a surrogate father to me. I showed up a couple of weeks before what, what was graduation the end of the year at Curtis. And he said, you know, you don't need to stay a fifth year. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, he's like, it's time for you to sink or swim. And I was, I was like, you know, immediately bursting into tears. I, cause I had no plan B. I mean, they, they supported my you know, again, I was resource dependent on Curtis. It was my wonderful, you know, I love the school so dearly. Um, I had no, no plan. I was like, how's health insurance going to happen? Rent, you know, life, right? So he's like, well, it's time for you to figure out, you know, how bad you really want this. You have enough, uh, you know, concert starting. So I pulled up the, you know, the orchestra musician paper and the only audition really that was happening was principal of Oregon symphony. And so um, I'd never taken a formal orchestra audition, never had prepared a list other than for Curtis, you know, uh, like the orchestra auditions at Curtis and submitted my resume. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, used my last sort of free plane trip ticket you could get from Curtis for to go to a, like a professional development event, if you will, or, you know, competition or whatever, and flew out to Oregon. And a couple of things that are just fun to note. One is that at the same time in their building, um, Anthony McGill, now the principal, of course, clarinetist of New York Bill was also preparing. So we prepared and like played for each other um and drilled and all of that and then i got out to oregon um portland and um dear mentors and friends of mine jennifer higdon the composer um and her partner cheryl were happened to be out there visiting family and i got to see them so they put me at ease but i was completely panicked so long story short i ended up winning that job and jimmy james DePriest came out at the end at the last final round and everything was like, congratulations. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then I called to tell David Sawyer, of course, immediately following the, the audition, he was like, see, I told you so. And I was like, that's not the point. You put me through. I was like a stress case. You know, how am I going to do this? So a long winded way of stating, um, you know, I think at that time, I, I hadn't really thought about how to balance a career in chamber music, which I loved so dearly with the realities of, of actually needing to support myself. And, and even though most of my friends were moving to New York City, I didn't have the resources to be able to put a down payment on a, you know, to do the first and last month rent and all those things. So I chartered a path that could ideally give me some financial security. And I was very lucky to have that. Fast forward a couple months later, I applied for associate principal of Pittsburgh Symphony, won that. And then I kept 
being in, I kept either like winning or being in the finals of other principal auditions that were kind of dragging on, you know, where there'd be a trial or no decision was made and yada, yada. So uh, although I, I, I think in retrospect, I, I was not a very, uh, I wasn't a wonderful uh, colleague in many regards in, in orchestra. I lacked the humility um, and respect in, in, in a sense as a, as a 21 year old when I started in some of those jobs. And um, it's something that still makes me cringe to think about. Um, I, you know, if I thought there was a Boeing that didn't seem to be artistically didn't seem to meet the composer's intent. I didn't see why you shouldn't just change that, even if it was not in matching of the concert masters or something. You know, it was just totally, I was really quite obnoxious about things. So, so I kept trying to move around and I kept thinking that if I found other jobs, maybe I would find the, the actual job, you know, more, you know, just something that I would enjoy more in some, some cases, but I just, I found it challenging in, in orchestra, to be quite honest. So that that sort of started me off on another path. Well, what I think is interesting is even listening to it now, like I know it wasn't an easy path, but it sounds like it was a lot easier than it actually was. And, and so I wonder if it might be helpful actually to go back a little bit. Um, obviously, you can feel comfortable to share as much or a little as you want, but like you were kind of on your own mm-hmm. from a pretty young age yeah, and you were at very. CIM and you talked when we were talking earlier today about feeling behind um, cello wise like just not feeling like you're secure the instrument and you're not ready Absolutely. And, and so I wonder if you can maybe walk <clears throat> me through some of that like how did you get caught up as it were or like how did you do you know what I mean like how did you get to where you needed to be that's well and I mean I credit to you I mean individuals I mean and specifically you know you as 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 your listeners may become aware you know we were you and I both started in like Suzuki Twinklers in Columbus, Ohio, when we were like around, you know, two and a half or so years old. And then, you know, I switched to cello and did some other, you know, singing and other things as a kid. And what I found, what, you know, then we were, I had the wonderful fortune of moving back to Columbus, Ohio, and I met you um, and what became our string quartet in sixth grade on. And, you know, all you guys, all, you know, you, Todd Park, Bruce Lowe, were all, you know, total wunderkin in the in the, on the violin and and Bruce and the viola. Um and so, you know, and I really wanted to play with you guys, but I was like behind. I hadn't played, I hadn't really taken it serious. My mom gave me the option at some points during elementary school where I could either pay for um I could either clean the bathrooms in exchange for her continuing to pay the rent on my cello. Um, or she was going to return it and I didn't want her to return it. So I chose to like clean the bathrooms. So I, I wanted it for some reason, but I just didn't want to practice and work at it. So um, I think you guys, when we got, I had the privilege of being part of that quartet, it was the first times that I really was like, Oh wow. I really want to be able to play with you guys in this group. And I need to catch up at least a little bit to <laughs> try to hold my own, but it was like humbling because you guys were fantastic. And I had, you know, really hadn't played in, you know, kind of any in a couple of years, really. When I got to Cleveland, I started as a double major in composition and cello, and I really loved composing, um, which is a theme I think I've come back to now later in life because I think I really like I love blank pages and building things, which I think is certainly a commonality 
throughout, you know, my life in different ways. But at the time, you know, I was really concerned about supporting myself. I, I had been, I'd left home fairly early and was financially independent primarily um, and, and needed to figure out how to get a job. And to me, I thought that I should give myself a couple of years and see how fast or you know, how much I could catch up on the cello. I was really behind. So, you know, I was fortunate to study with Richard Aaron at the time I'd moved to Cleveland and he, he just is phenomenal at setting somebody up to, you know, have a relaxed, phenomenal, you know, technique. Um, and so I just, I just hustled and everybody around me was dedicated and exceptional. It was an incredibly nurturing place at Cleveland Institute of Music. And I just, I just said about my bow arm wasn't straight. Everything was tense. You know, I was, so I just sat in front of the mirror until like it was straight. And, you know, like you just, you just picked off one thing after another and figured out how to make the building blocks bit by bit so that, you know, you drilled in such a way that you could execute. When I, I was fortunate to be able to get into Curtis and transfer there when I was 18. And that was, again, when I got there, I was behind, I felt, and I wanted to excel. And so, and I was so lucky again then to be there with my string quartet, as mentioning with Suvin Kim, Ethan Cole, Bertrand Tang, all phenomenal musicians. And then had a piano trio with Jonathan Biss and Hilary Hahn. And just, it was just, it was just amazing, um, you know, to be surrounded by individuals who also had such work ethic and discipline. And so you just worked. And I think one of the things that I really reflect on, I've certainly never been the most talented or most naturally gifted individual at all. I think that one thing that I was, um, that, that David Sawyer taught me was definitely how to teach myself, which I think about all the time and how to problem solve the issues you're having. And I think that the thing that I maybe can stand to do more than others could sometimes, um, who are certainly more gifted than I, I am or was, um, was that I could work on the things that I wasn't good at. So I didn't, spend a lot of time practicing things that I was good at in general. I, I tried to work on the things that I was crummy at. <laughs> so, and I think that served me very well. And I think sometimes I found that later in my teaching that a lot of my students would only want to just keep working on the things that they were good at or play the same passages that they were good at. Um, and they didn't always have the discipline to, you know, work on the things that, that were out of tune or sloppy or whatever. So I think that served me quite well, but it was scary. I mean, I, I, I think in general, the common theme of having in a way, no safety net and figuring out how to make that safety net for yourself can be a wonderful gift, but it's always easier to say that once you're through it. I'm curious about this problem solving, teaching yourself. I mean, is that a perspective that your teachers gave you or kind of encouraged or was it something you just figured out on your own maybe feeling like you're behind so you needed to figure out a way to accelerate i mean i think you're right that a lot of people find it easier to to try to make the things that they're already pretty good at even better because it's not fun to realize oh you know what i really suck at this or this is really <laughs> right. difficult for me like no one wants to spend time doing that because that makes you feel like you're behind and like not going to get anywhere do you have a sense of how that came about well, I think in some, maybe some morose kind of way, I enjoy challenges and like block breaking it down to try to figure out at the micro level. But again, I think, you know, when I think one of the things that was like, I used you know, watching 
you know, at Marlboro watching like Midori every, you know, in the mornings practice, like single note, how close to the bridge or watching Hillary drill or Robert Chen prepare for concert master audition. What all those things that you, I was watching these individuals and I was really fascinated with how each individual would, who were so, you know, incredibly disciplined and worked incredibly hard, even though they look like they never miss anything, never make a mistake. You, I was watching how they prepared for everything. And I found that fascinating and totally inspiring. And so I, I feel like I took a lot of things from watching these extraordinary violinists and, you know, and then tried to apply it in my own. I mean, I think to, in that regards, I mean, Sawyer, who I, you know, I love obviously so dearly um, and his voice is in my head still, you know, for various things, you know, still to this day constantly, obviously. But um, he he wasn't exactly one to point it out. He would just be like, you know, there was nothing expressivo about that that phrase. And somehow he had the ability to make you feel like a flea when he would say that. So you just keep going and trying. And But I think in general, he really cultivated that attention and love of as you would say, the music between the notes and what is your vibrato, you know, organizing things in such a way that the speed, the oscillation of, of each note of vibrato on any note, the amount of bow speed, the pressure, angle, blah, blah, blah. You were required to have a plan in such a way that, again, back to creating your own safety net, that on the worst day, you knew how you were going to still execute. Um, and so, if you were, if it was an amazing day where you're so inspired and everything's perfect, then you could just be free and innovate and play on top of that. But you had to know on, on a day where everything wasn't feeling well, what was the plan? Every note, every phrase, every movement and so forth. And, um, you know, he expected you to figure it out as did Felix Gallimere in our coaching and all those things as well. But I think it was just the, the expectation that, your privilege to be playing this amazing, these amazing works and these compose, what is the composer's intention and how are you going to honor that intention and the thought required at the micro level to be able to, to realize the whole picture. So I think, I think it was just kind of inculcated in everything we're doing, certainly at Curtis and at Marlboro as well, obviously. A lot of it sounds to me like just learning how to get better at your craft and what, principles underlie excellence and absolutely which might be a good transition to what happened after all these <laughs> orchestra traditions and these positions in your time there was the american string quartet next or like how did, yeah, how did you so, go from yeah. yeah no yeah so i was i was associate principal in pittsburgh in the finals for a bunch of other things and or a few other positions at that time and then, you know, I had the chance to join the American String Quartet, and I'd always dreamed of being in a string quartet. And they were in residence, still are in residence in Manhattan School of Music and Aspen in the summer. And so that was super exciting to me because I had always, I loved teaching and I jumped at the chance and um, moved to New York City. Um, in retrospect, certainly as a decision point, it was an absolutely asinine financial move or, and certainly not well thought out in that, you know, I had a, just purchased a cello. The Pittsburgh Symphony had loaned me interest-free some money towards that, which of course then I had to repay immediately. 
I had a large loan from Marlboro. Um, very fortunate to have these things, but you know, it's like balancing a house payment with also needing to live. And it was decimating to financial planning. So I, I was thrilled. It was wonderful. Um, you know, I had the chance to do my first Beethoven cycle and I built a studio at Manhattan school, which I absolutely loved um, in both orchestral repertoire and chamber music and in private. What I found during that time, however, was that after, after touring some seasons with the, the quartet, a couple things happened. One was, you know, you started to be back at the same venues and the same individual, you know, meeting the same wonderful patrons and such each year. But it it still left me kind of wondering, seeking for more in terms of, you know, God willing, was this this was this what I was going to do year after year for like 50 years, God willing, right, or whatever. And it just it just seemed disconnected increasingly from, you know, post 9-11 living in New York City thinking about just it also changes not only in our society, but with the influence of digital media in our space, traditional revenue streams were, um, you know, all but evaporating. You know, it, it was just a challenging time in the arts. It felt to me as a, what was like, what was my role? What was I supposed to, to do? How was I supposed to best contribute? And so I was starting to really struggle with that. And then at the same time, I, my 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 wonderful husband Nick, we we were getting married around that time, and I he's not a musician, and we would have all these conversations about various things in international affairs or economics and so forth. And I basically did not have a single basis of knowledge about anything outside of classical music, and it started to really piss me off in terms of my lack of ability to formalize or formulate any type of discussion point, if you will. I won't use the word argument, but just to be able to, you know, discuss various issues going on in our society. So I got the bee in my bonnet that I was going to go to grad school. So I applied to Columbia University to study international affairs because Nick prior to moving to New York had worked in the oil industry and petroleum engineering field. And I wanted to study the role of oil corporations in emerging markets, basically to be able to effectively argue with my husband was really the, the peak motivator. Um, so, and, and, and truth in this, I was actually really curious if I could do anything else. You know, I'd gone to conservatory so early, I'd really stopped formal education by the time I was like about 14. You know, I just hadn't, I just didn't even know if I could do anything. So I applied to Columbia because it was across the street from Manhattan School of Music. And I figured that was doable with my current roles and rehearsal schedules quartet. And Columbia rejected me. And then that really irritated me. So long story short, they ended up granting me the a dean at the dean at the time uh, had uh, a family member who was knew people in the classical music space and said that, well, she must not be a total, you know, incompetent individual. She's on the faculty of Manhattan School, blah, blah, blah. So they let me take a course. I was supposed to take two courses. And if I could do okay, then I would finish matriculation. So I was very fortunate to do well. That first class was a nightmare for me. It was incredibly challenging. It was one, it was not a first class I should have taken, war, peace, and strategy. And one of the finals was taking place during a dress rehearsal sound check time for a Carnegie Hall concert I had with the quartet. And um, I had to petition very carefully to be able to take my exam another time. 
sometime later, I had also, as I matriculated in, I got docked because I was actually giving a class at Brown when I had a class at Columbia and they docked me. So it, it was not an easy graduate school study program to be in while doing my obviously full-time job with, with as a cellist, but I found that I absolutely loved it. And I found that much to my shocking surprise, although it was beyond daunting because when I started grad school, I had never researched on the internet. I graduated from Curtis when there was no website prior to Nathan Cole building one um, for Curtis at that time, this, you know, back in 99. So it, it was, it was incredibly daunting I mean, it was so challenging for me, but, you know, I ended up being published in law journals. I wrote, um, I presented at Yale Law School, things that just, it was an incredibly um, rewarding experience to do something in a different field. And in a way, it made me strengthen my love of music a lot more. Wasn't there time, I think you mentioned, where you were sleeping in your studio in Manhattan, like so that you could manage everything? Yes. Oh, nightmare. Nightmare. Well, because I was then at that time, I was also playing out. It was when I left the quartet, but I was still full time in the full time teaching at um, Manhattan School. And so I was playing principal weeks out in, in San Diego Symphony. I'm um, just the subscription week. Sorry, the subscription weeks with San Diego Symphony. And I would take a red eye back. The janitor at Manhattan School was wonderful. And that was on duty at that time on Monday mornings would let me get into the building early, I'd go sleep on the floor, then start to teach um, at, you know, eight to 10 or whatever, then go to Columbia, go to class all day, then come back, do more teaching. And then we were actually living far out in Long Island and Stony Brook area at the time. And then I would take the two and a half hour train ride home. (laughs) Do you remember what motivated you at that point to try to balance all of this? I mean, beyond just wanting to be able to articulate arguments more clearly with your husband? (laughs) Um. You know, I think back to, again, I was just really struggling with, you know, kind of where, you know, I like to be challenged. I like problem solving. I like things that I think I was just really hungry to learn and study more and not in any way, shape or form to say that, you know, performing as a cellist is not a constant challenge. I mean, obviously, and dedication throughout your life. But I wanted, I was curious to, to explore more. Um, and I was hungry to learn more about the world around me and, and just had kind of missed, you know, I wasn't like, you know, some of the wonderful, like yourselves who did, did undergraduate studies or things that were you, um, or, you know, or classmates of mine at Curtis who took classes at Penn or who took their own classes at Curtis which are amazing. Um, very, you know, seriously, I didn't, I just, I was working, I was performing, I was traveling and I was, I was practicing, you know, so I didn't take it serious. So I just, I think it was more a hunger and a curiosity and a stubbornness. I worked well when someone said I couldn't do something, then I liked to prove them wrong, which can be a positive and a negative, right? At times. Is that maybe what helped with kind of combating doubts about your ability to do things or did you kind of figure out pretty early on that you had what it took no I still don't feel like I've never felt that way you know you never I never feel like I'm you know I think the only commonality in any of my positions to date or anything that I've had done is that I always feel like I'm incredibly like that I don't I'm not prepared for anything I've ever like won or achieved or something so everything that that I've done thus far and continue to do you know I feel like yeah, always feels like a you know there's a big 
big hurdle ahead and, you know, can you put your head down and break it down and just do it bit by bit? Otherwise it, you know, it just looks too daunting to ever do. So the process, it sounds like is very similar to like tackling all 24 Pagadini Caprices or 60s Isonauts exactly. whatever. Absolutely. Just like break it down, figuring out what you need to work on, trying to problem solve those, figuring out what are the important components involved, yes. get better at those, put them together. So I'm actually inclined to skip over Instant Encore, McChrystal Groove, like all these other things, because I want to skip ahead if it's okay to where you are right now with artists mm-hmm. here, because that seems like a really interesting place to have come through on the other end in a way where it kind of ties together in a way maybe what you were thinking about doing but didn't know you would be doing back when you started at Columbia. That's so beautifully put. Um, Thank you for recognizing that. Yeah, it's it's been a full circle having spent you know, a number of years and kind of building startups or, or being part of wonderful growth companies and so forth in a couple of different areas. And yes, I mean, and as you said, like, I mean, I think having a blank canvas, if you will, and getting to like you do with a piece of music or, or, or in any organization, or if you have an idea of something and then how do you, how do you break it down and build it up? that's something I just, I, I love doing, um, and being part of. And I, and I think just like chamber music, I love doing that with a small dedicated team too. There's nothing I think more rewarding than getting to do that with close knit group of individuals. I know Google often asks, you know, sometimes at recruiting interviews, uh, what's your best day of work look like? Um, and I think about that question a lot because I think it's, it's a similar one for, chamber music or for a company in that sense where you're part of, you know, where you have a performance where different, you're supporting different voices or in a company where you are supporting one another in different ways and you watch a product be the first to market or some sort. So yeah, anyways, long-winded story. Yeah. So, um, so artist year had been an accidental merge of, of some passions and kind of founding pillars, if you will, of, of my, my journey thus far, just to take it back for a second. So I'm an active duty military spouse. My husband currently serves in the military and that, that process or, you know, being part of that journey is, is, is a wonderful privilege. And it's also quite challenging and often quite anonymous and invisible. And a few years back, I was part of this initiative that was coming out of the Aspen Institute to increase the number of national service positions in our world, in our country, to solve some of our nation's biggest challenges and to, you know, at the time things were looking and it's only increased more polarized in our society and and whether um, socioeconomic groups or civilian and military divide and so forth. And so this is an effort to say, what if we had more shared cultural experiences as a nation for everyone to, as a rite of passage, in some way serve um, our nation? So my husband was deployed at the time in Afghanistan and Certainly that was very much on my mind, obviously. And at that event out in Aspen, Yo-Yo Ma and Damien Weitzel did some um, commentary and shared things about citizen artistry there. And although I was at that event on a military side, I was so struck by what was the opportunity or where were the opportunities for artists to serve our nation and to use their amazing skills and so forth. So what ended up kind of happening fast forward a bit was the founding of artist year. So artist year is the first 
national service program for artists to dedicate a year of service as full-time teaching artists in high poverty schools to ensure that every underserved youth in our nation has has access to arts education. And so, you know, the, if you think about it as an equation, there's near, almost nearly a million um, higher art education arts graduates in our nation who graduate yearly. If you look at it broadly across creative writing and um, visual artists to, you know, photographers, comics, to, you know, musicians, hip hop artists, the whole nine. So you've got a million about over on that side of the equation. And then if you take it with the number of underserved youth in our nation who do not have access to arts education, it's kind of a staggering stat that I think about often. Um, 80% of low-income students in our nation attend poverty schools, but only about 26% of them report receiving any arts education at some point in their in their schooling um, compared to about 60% of their more affluent peers. So it's a pretty staggering number. And so we set about thinking about what if you pair these amazing arts graduates with um, a teacher in a high poverty school to deliver arts education, either during school or after school. And really our focus is not just on arts for arts sake. This is about believing that arts education is a fundamental right for the citizens in our nation, regardless of their zip code, and that arts is one of the most critical components towards critical thinking and towards self-discipline, towards civic engagement, and as a way to become an engaged citizen in our nation and is key to promoting a thriving democracy. So that's was sort of the origin of that. And when we received that amazing gift from Jerry Lenfest. We didn't, we weren't a 501c3. We didn't have a way to deposit the check. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it just became apparent when you think back on what things matter in your life. You know, I, I would have regretted terribly not trying to give it a go to not only honor the opportunity that Jerry gave to us to start Artist Year, but I thought the opportunity to merge you know, artists coming out, thinking about their role in society and this, the, all the young people in our, our world who are in our nation who, who um, can potentially benefit from having arts education. It just seemed like a no brainer. So the first grant I ever wrote was for um, AmeriCorps, which if anyone has ever written a federal grant or just grants period, it's, it's unthinkable to me now that that's the way I decided to start learning how to write a grant, never written a grant in my life. But it was such an important thing for us as an organization to try to become part of AmeriCorps because AmeriCorps enables loan forbearance during a service year. It gives an education award of, of almost $6,000 to those who serve, it, a host of other benefits. And I we wanted to make sure that Artist Year was able to be open to everyone, not just for those that could essentially afford to serve. Um, who had, you know, parents who could take on loans, repayments or whatnot. You know, national service is certainly a sacrifice. You're not getting rich off of it. You know, you get a living stipend, health insurance reimbursements and so forth. But it's certainly, you know, it is, it's a sacrifice to be sure, but it's been amazing. So we currently have 55 artist year AmeriCorps fellows, as we call them, who are serving and across all artistic disciplines and at the moment they are serving um in 51 schools they teach 11,000 students twice a week not duplicated students they, they're teaching the 
the same about 200 students every week, those 11,000 during the school year. Um, and so they're cumulatively delivering over about 93,000 hours of arts instruction in the schools that they're in. We're currently in three locations in Philadelphia and in the borough of Queens in New York City and um, in the Roaring Fork Valley in rural Colorado in partnership actually with Aspen Music Festival in school, which is is a wonderful um, and different uh, you know, experience to be out in a more remote location compared to the urban. So equally important. It's been an amazing journey, challenging to be sure, but you know, it's just, it's, it's, we're having a lot of fun. So we're just getting started and hope to be eventually in, in all states or most ma- major centers if, if we're so fortunate over time. And I think we could easily spend an episode or more talking about, you know, the research and like the benefits to students of an arts education in terms of creative thinking and problem solving and all those sorts of things. Reminds me of Daniel Pink's book that I read many years ago, like A Whole New Mind and the idea of like designing a toaster and a a toilet plunger. Like why does it have to be so kind of utilitarian and and it could be a piece of art as well and and sort of function. Anyhow, I mean, we could go there, but but, um, I'm also curious about, you know, the fellows, like what do they report getting out of their experience in their own development and kind of growth as artists? Oh, it's been amazing. That's an amazing to, uh, question. It's, and it's, we're, you know, we're in year two of our AmeriCorps program. So it's, it's still new, but what's been happening, you know, about 50% are deciding to go into some form of teaching artistry or accelerated track towards wanting to teach, which is phenomenal in the arts. Some of them have been hired by their schools as full-time contracted teachers post their, post their service year and so forth and so on. But above that, I mean, beyond, some are going, you know, to veterinarian schools, some are going to, you know, one is a principal clarinetist in Fort Worth Symphony. You, you know, you have a broad range of paths following. Um, but I think most of them, not to paraphrase, but they're having a chance to see a community and become part of a community because they're at the same school with the same students for the whole year. It's very different than a lot of us might have traditionally had with outreach where you go in and play or you do a special thing, but then you kind of move on. So, I mean, they are immersed in in the community and the emotions and the perspective that they're that they've shared with us. That the impact that they're had, they're, they they feel as they've had on their own artistry, their own perspective on socioeconomic challenges in our nation, challenges for schools that have been dealing with DACA issues, with you know immigration. Ch- I mean, just all the things that are that are oftentimes kind of out of sight, out of mind for, and depending if you're practicing in the walls of, of Juilliard or Curtis or whatnot. So I think it's, they've shared that it's transformative for them. And you see that in, in the way that some of them are continuing on to start organizations to address some of these challenges or, or whatever mechanism it, it takes beyond them. We kind of have a, a rather formalized professional development arc during their service year that focuses on their successful entry to exit, if you will, from their service year. I mean, it's an intense, it's an intense service year, right? They're, they're working in high, highly um, complex environments. And even though we as an organization are focused on, you know, serving underserved students and believing that all schools deserve to be rich with the arts and making sure that, we are increasing arts equity and access in a sustainable way through our program. Obviously, equally, and, and the cornerstone of this is that 
our fellows are the change agents, as you will. Um, and they, we are dedicated towards helping them become effective teaching artists to become, you know, effective members of, of our 21st century workforce, if you will, in whatever way, and active participants as citizen artists in our world. So we, to that end, they start their year going through a rather robust orientation training and institute focused on learning about teaching artistry and culture and context in and the effects of poverty and chronic stress in students and communities and how to how develop develop skills to build capacity building um, in the schools for the schools to become arts rich. And we also do a session with the Aspen Institute on how to how to take complicated text in this case, like Martin Luther King letters from Birmingham jail or Gettysburg address or other amazing founding documents from our nation and think about how to discuss those kind of things. So they learn how to be facilitators while teaching kind of how to respect identity or the concepts around identity. They start that their year with that and then they move into modules on learning how to be a citizen artist development or, or leadership throughout their careers and self-care and time management and how to art for social justice. And they learn how to work on preparing a community arts event. Um, each one of them cultivates or executes at least one community arts event during the course of their year um, of service. And it's amazing to see what some of these guys do. Then, then the last portion of their year is focused, the professional development side is focused on planning for themselves as citizen artists going out beyond their service year and how to help their school stay arts rich, if you will, like prepare for how to sustain the work, the work that they've they've charted during their year. So we always partner with the school, I should say, for about three years at least. So to help them become more arts rich and sustainable over time. So there's some been some amazing stories of, of what that journey is, is looking like. So I have this theory that that in particular, you know, artists, musicians, athletes, given what it takes to excel, you know, that they're all much more capable than we give ourselves credit for. And I've had students who privately express doubts and fears about their ability to contribute outside of music because they, you know, quote, only went to conservatory. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they haven't had rigorous schooling since high school in an academic sense. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because you went from music into all these other areas and have kind of come back to it in different ways and so forth. But what you described these fellows getting, I think I heard you say something about, I mean, obviously the hope is that the students through arts education and learning that they can create things and they can do more than they thought that they could, maybe it's empowering for the students. But I think I heard you say that it's really empowering for the fellows Absolutely. as well. They've gone on to to expect more of themselves in terms of what they want to contribute using their music or their art in a society. Absolutely. Sense. I mean, that that's one of the things we share at the beginning of the year that just keeps coming back at um, through mid-year reviews and at the end of end of the service year overwhelmingly and not exactly to your point you know this is something that that we know is hard for, I mean service is hard and like and being a full-time teaching artist in a in a low-income school in our nation is, is incredibly is incredibly challenging and the pride in the feeling and dedication that they uh, in their dedication that they feel at the end of their service year is, is just amazing. It's deeply moving. Um, and again, most of them or many of them might not have ever put together community events um, with, you know, thousands of individuals attending or, you know, across over the course of the 
you know, their service year and so forth. So, or created field trips for their students or, and in tandem with community arts partnerships that they're establishing. Um, so, you know, there's all these things that they're learning how to do in an entrepreneurial sense, as well as learning how to be flexible with, you know, you might, you know, with a lesson plan, you might have intended to do X, but something happens and you've got to, you've got to do why. So how to have that flexible mindset and how to be adaptable, how to effectively communicate with um, teachers, with students, with parents, with principals, all who are so taxed in most capacities. What I'm thinking about is if you have like a general life philosophy or um, something that's sort of been a guiding principle, but, but I guess that's what well, I'm Well, so about. I think actually I should have said this back if we we're, we're starting about artist year, you know, when I think I, I often reflect on kind of, and I constantly think about what are the pillars that are, that are common, you know, have been throughout my journey thus far. And first is the arts. Um, I was fortunate to, have access to extraordinary education and and training in the arts. The arts has helped me. It served me beautifully in terms of my own ability to express um, myself, perhaps in ways that otherwise I wouldn't have known how to express myself through through music. And it took care of me, like like emotionally and financially, if you will. Um, it supported me in, in every way. So there's that side of that from the beginning, and then. The second side is the concept of citizenship, and the third one is service. And when I say citizenship, I think that through different challenges I had in my life, it's it's but for the accidental blessing that I was born in this country and that there are so many things that helped take care of me and supported me in a way that was just so fortunate. So I think about how lucky you know I am to have to have been born here and, and have, and what is my responsibility to pay some of that privilege forward and how do I, in a sense, earn the right of my citizenship? So I think that's, that's something that I think about an awful lot. And then third is um, in terms of service, uh, you know, as a, as an active duty military spouse, the concept of service um, and now running national service organization is very much obviously on my mind. and think something that I think, uh, I'm most grateful for outside of, uh, aside from the arts and the accidental gift of being born here in terms of being part of the military community and the national service community has enabled me to meet people from so many different communities and backgrounds in a way that I would have never, you know, never had that chance if I had, if I was still playing in, in a major symphony orchestra in, um, in that line of work. I mean, I've lived in Missouri, you know, spent time in Alabama, rural, rural communities across this nation and watching the sacrifices of our military community. It's just, it's just been deeply moving and humbling. So, and I think to that, to the point of feeling like you often, like those of us, like myself, like going to conservatory and I just, you know, I've just never really felt, you know, I like, was I prepared for anything? As I said, I, the only commonality is I haven't been prepared really for any job I've ever had. But I think what I've been amazed by, and it's one of the reasons that I believe so much in why arts should be provided for all students in our nation, regardless of zip code, is because you see that the building blocks that you learn in the arts is so transferable to anything 
Um, and I know there's so much literature and, you know, stuff about that, but you never know it until you try it yourself. I share with our fellows a lot as they're embarking at the end of the year too, when they're doing, we do some time, we spend some time on kind of, you know, what kind of positions, what do they like about their current role? What is challenging? What what are they going to do this next stage? How does it balance with their professional and personal goals and making sure they remember personal too, because sometimes that gets divorced from people's pictures. And uh, I think reminding them that they, you know, a lot of them have gone in and created things from nothing um, in terms of initiatives and, and projects and so forth. And that should give them a whole lot of grounded confidence in the ability to take on whatever they wish um, going forward. And I, I, I hope that for them very much, um, that they know that. And that's something that no one can ever take from them, that they did that. Our conversation actually doesn't end here. And we go on to talk about other random things like trying to cut down on the number of apps we have on our phones, various articles we've read recently, and stuff related to our kids. So I think this is probably as good a place to wrap up as any. For a full transcript of this episode, plus links to random interesting things that came up in conversation, as well as resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet, please visit bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.